Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 7 of the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud Podcast Book 4. Today, we'll be reading chapter 7, but first, a recap of chapter 6. Kate and Ty are hanging out together in Kate's room, while Rennie and Sticky are trying to figure out Mr. Benedict's message. Kate was entertaining Ty by showing him her tranquilizer gun and even giving him a small demonstration for fun. Constance is up in her room, being very angry at basically everything. Constance knows that she gets on everyone's nerves, but she doesn't want to. It's just something that happens. Constance revealed, to us at least, that she knows over time each of the older mysterious Benedict Society members have developed a temporary crush on one another, but no matter how mad Constance got at them, she never revealed this. Now Constance is going to try and turn the tables on the listener and try to find out where she is for once. Sticky's having some problems of his own, comparing himself to Rennie and not wanting to leave the others. Rennie then came to make amends with Sticky so everything wouldn't be so awkward anymore. Then Constance burst in to tell them that SQ was in trouble and McCracken was the one coming for him. That's the end of the summary, but before we begin, I have a shout out and something to tell you guys. So first, a shout out to Rahel. I am so happy that you are enjoying the podcast and I really hope I pronounce your name correctly, which leads me into what I need to tell you guys about. I absolutely love giving shoutouts and receiving voice messages, but I want to make sure when I give shoutouts that I'm pronouncing everything correctly. When you send in a voice message, I can see your name, but from now on, I would like you guys to please say your name in the message so I can pronounce your name correctly and make sure I give you guys a proper shoutout. So thanks for listening. You guys mean the absolute world to me, and I hope everyone enjoys the episode. Chapter 7 Distressing Daydreams and Fair Observations I listened in on the listener, Constance was shouting as the platform descended, and this time I heard something. McCracken was trying to get her to locate SQ, but it doesn't work that way. She tried, but she couldn't find him. She paused for a breath. He doesn't have a bright signal, Sticky said. Constance shook her head. They were passing through the attic, which suddenly grew dim as the trapdoor closed above them, shutting out the sunlight. But McCracken and some others are going anyway. They still think they can catch him. It's all very confusing, but the listener sensed the menace in McCracken's mind. It scared her, and that's why I think I could hear things as well as I did, or see things. I could see as she saw they were leaving. It seems really bad. So, SQ's not with Mr. Benedict and Mr. Curtin anymore? Rennie asked. No, he's somewhere in town. He left a message for McCracken in some secret location. Something in it made McCracken decide to go after him. The platform settled into place on the third floor, just as Kate came bounding up from below. She was carrying Ty Lai piggyback, the way she used to do with Constance, and was taking the stairs three at a time. What's going on? she said as they all came together. Ty says you're scared about something, Constance. McCracken's going after SQ, Rennie said quickly. To Constance, he said. Can you warn SQ, send him a message? I've already tried, Constance said with a frustrated shake of her head. I don't know how to explain it, but if I don't know where he is, I can't, can't aim, I guess. And even if he heard me, I don't think he'd realize it was me. He's not like you, Rennie. I don't think he figured it out. Not in time, anyway. How much time do we have? Kate asked. Minutes? Half an hour? I'm not sure, but not long. Rennie and Sticky glanced at each other and took off running in different directions. Sticky was headed to his computer station, Rennie to the two-way radio, which he kicked himself now for having left on the second floor. He really was off his game. He descended the stairs as fast as he could and flew down the hallway. Intercom, Sticky's office, he cried as he ran into the dining room. All clear, Sticky's voice blared just as Rennie reached the radio. He spat out a string of code words followed by a bulletin. Ask Cubadellion in danger. If you see him, warn him to take cover immediately. Rennie released a button he'd been pressing and stared helplessly at the radio. 
What were the odds that one of the handful of agents and sentries scattered about the very large city of Stonetown would just happen to spot SQ? Very slim. Too slim. He rubbed at his forehead, trying to work up some sort of answer. And a sort of answer came to him. Sticky, he yelled, in his urgency. It didn't even occur to him to say George. Have everyone meet me in the study. Rennie ran toward the door, stopped, ran back for the radio, and headed upstairs. By the time he came puffing into his study, the others were waiting there. They stood around his desk, looking at him expectantly. No one wasted time by asking questions. Ty, wide-eyed, sat in Rennie's desk chair with both hands over his mouth. Evidently, he'd been counseled to keep quiet. Rennie closed the door and gestured at the map of Stonetown. Constance, he said, you saw what the listeners saw, right? What can you tell us? Any detail might help us figure out where McCracken thinks SQ is. He held up the radio. We could send word. An agent might be able to get to him before McCracken does. All eyes turned to Constance, who, purely out of habit, opened her mouth to protest, then collected herself and said, I'll do my best. It's so hard to do this all at once. She whirled her hands about. But okay, yes, I'll try. The whirling motions had loosened the pushed-up sleeves of the green plaid suit jacket, which slipped down now and covered her hands. She didn't bother to push them up again, but she crossed her arms and squeezed her eyes closed, looking as if she were in a straitjacket. Suddenly, her face relaxed. Something had occurred to her. In fact, Constance said, I can do better than that. I can show you. Everybody, clear your mind. No one hesitated, even for a second. All eyes in the room closed. What happened next was different for each person, but they all felt equally strange, and they all saw and heard the same thing. It was like having someone else's daydream, and what happened in the daydream was this. McCracken sat in a vast, gloomy space, almost certainly a warehouse, hoarding a mostly eaten apple in one hand and a leather in the other. He was perched, minus his suit jacket, on the hood of a small limousine. An open briefcase rested beside him. His expensive, shiny black shoes were visible on the concrete floor in front of him, and his wide feet and handsome patterned stockings were braced on the car's chrome bumper. He was staring intently at the letter, chewing. Standing nearby, evidently having just delivered the letter, was a familiar figure, a bald white head, a leering face with a single eyebrow, a deceptively spindly-looking body, and an elegant suit. Crawlings. He was gulping air doubled over with one hand braced on his knee, and his face was red from excursion. Do step back, dear fellow, McCracken said, without taking his eyes from the leather. Your gasped agitate me. As Crawling shuffled backward a step, another tenman entered the scene, a red-cheeked, blocky blonde man in a royal blue suit, and took up a position beside him. Then, bizarrely, he spent to do it again, as if the scene were starting over. But no, it was actually a duplicate of the first man. They were identical twins, the Katz brothers. They stood in patient silence, watching McCracken finish the leather and slip it into his pocket. His face thoughtful, he took a last bite of his apple, then flung the core high into the air. On its way down, the apple core jerked sideways, its trajectory violently altered. When it hit the ground, both ends of the pencil could be seen protruding from it. McCracken closed his briefcase and slid off the car, with jounce with a shedding of tremendous weight. With quick, graceful movements, he slipped on his shoes, then walked over to a card table, which previously had been out of view. In strange contrast to the gloomy warehouse, the table board bore fresh fruit and a vase of cut flowers. McCracken took his suit jacket from the back of a folding chair and returned to huddle with the other ten men. In a low tone, scarcely audible, McCracken asked something about a precise location. Crawling shook his head non-committedly, uttering a sentence whose only intelligible word was fair. Close enough, McCracken said, retrieving his briefcase from the hood of the car. He gestured the Katz brothers, and, leaving Crawlings behind, the three men walked swiftly to a door, passing through it into the late afternoon sunshine and slamming it behind them. The door, failing to catch properly, swung open again to reveal all three men simultaneously fitting expensive sunglasses over squinting eyes. A Katz brother reached back to close the door more securely, then they were gone. 
All of this occurred in a space of a minute. Precious little had happened, yet from the moment McCracken had speared the Capricor with a razor-sharp pencil, the daydream had taken on an unmistakable feeling of threat. Instead of an apple, SQ was McCracken's target now. What he intended to do with their friend, once he found them, was impossible to tell. But what was very clear indeed was that McCracken would get what he wanted from SQ, whatever it took. There, there, dearie, Crawlings purred, looking directly at the daydreamers. Don't look so troubled. Everything is as it should be. Every eye in the room plopped open. Siggy stood closest to Ty, so the little boy's anxious expression and reached to take his hand. Ty gratefully held on to it. Constance, Siggy said, why didn't we see McCracken asking the listener to locate SQ? I left that part out, Constance said. It was a full minute of darkness, just her with her eyes closed, searching in vain for the others waited. So weird, Kate murmured. Okay, Ronnie said, stepping to the map. Their starting point was a warehouse. Sticky, sorry, George. Zoning regulations only allow warehouses in certain neighborhoods of Stonetown, right? Right, Siggy said. He gave Ty's hand an excited squeeze. Some small-scale ones are allowed in almost every non-residential area. But how big do you think that building is, Kate? Kate considered for the briefest moment, then rattled off dimensions and so precise. It sounded as though she were reading them from a blueprint. Okay, that settles it, Sticky said. Only four neighborhoods are zoned for a warehouse of that size. He quickly named them. The old meatpacking district, which was bisected by the train yards at the far north fringe of the city. The textile district, which began about 20 blocks city due west. The cannery district in the southeast, and of course considerably closer to them, the dockyards near Stonetown Harbor. Rennie looked to Kate, intending to ask for a marker, but she was already handing him one. He circled the areas on the map. Each circle also happened to encompass a few pushpins. Rennie, based on the information he'd been given by agents and sentries, had already made some shrewd guesses about where the tin men might be holding up. Okay, he said quickly, we're looking for an area either within one of these circles or immediately to the west of them. Why does it have to be to the west? Ty piped up. The sun, replied everyone else at the same time. The effect was startling and Ty gasped. The others glanced at one another, but without the traditional amused expressions or crossing of eyes. It's late afternoon, Kate explained to Ty, so the sun is so low in the west. And did you see them all squinting when they put their sunglasses on? They were facing west when they set out. And we're looking for something close by the warehouse, Rennie said, because they left on foot. They didn't even think about taking a car. And Crawlings was breathing hard, remember? They probably ran up there the letter, and it wouldn't have been from very far away. If it were, he would have used some other form of transportation. Wow, Ty exclaimed. He let go of Siggy's hand to clap excitedly. This is fun! The others exchanged furtive glances. No one was going to try and convince Ty otherwise. They were already doing their best to keep air anxieties managed for his sake. Crawling said the word fair, right? Rennie said. He drew an arrow with his marker. Fair Avenue runs just to the west of Cannery District, so that's one possibility. There's almost nothing going on around there. That could be a good reason to choose it as a place to leave the letter. There's also the miniature golf course called Fairway Fun, Constance suggested. Isn't it near the textile district? We went there once with SQ, remember? He is always accidentally kicking the golf balls into the hazards. That doesn't make any sense, Sticky said. Constance turned on him with blazing eyes, but Rennie quickly spoke up. It was worth mentioning, Constance, he said, tapping the map with his marker. But look, Fairway Funds is to the east of the textile district. Sticky had actually meant that the name Fairway Fun made no sense, given the miniature golf courses contained no fairways, only putting greens. But time was of the essence, and he let the misunderstanding pass, not least because of a new idea had occurred to him. There was a street fair scheduled for today. I read it in the newspaper. They were blocking off Second and Chance Streets downtown. That's just west of the dockyards. Yes, Rennie drew an arrow on the map. If the streets are blocked off, that's another reason they wouldn't take the car. Uh-oh, Kate said, shaking her head. Guys, this just got harder. Do you remember where SQ lives? 
Fairhaven Apartments. Oh no, she's right, Sticky groaned. His rent's really cheap because the apartments are so close to the train yards. I remember trying to make a joke about it. There was an awkward beat of silence, as Sticky's friends remembered his extraordinarily unamusing attempt at wordplay. Something about SQ getting such a fair deal at Fairhaven. Even good-natured, SQ had struggled to chuckle politely. Yes, Constance said dryly, we remember that too. So maybe Crawlings had a reason to think SQ was walking home, Kate suggested, and he told McCracken where SQ lives. It seems more likely than hanging out on a street fair at a time like this, Diggy observed. The meatpacking district is so far away, though, said Kate, frowning. Rennie, where are all the agents stationed right now? Rennie quickly made several marks on the map. Kate's frown deepened. This is bad. Look, nobody is even the least bit close to any of those neighborhoods. That's no coincidence, Constance said with a dark look. The Katz brothers are famous for avoiding agents, right? There's a reason nobody's ever managed to trap them. Kate hurried forward and tapped the map with her finger. Look. We are as close to all four neighborhoods as anyone in Milligan's agents is. If I take Captain Plug's motorcycle, I can get there faster than any of them could. I'll find SQ and warn him myself. Sticky winced. Kate, at this time of day, average travel time is close to an hour for any of those neighborhoods, except the dockyards. You could make it down to the street fair pretty quickly, maybe, but only if you got lucky with traffic. I know you're a lot faster than average, but... I could at least try, Kate snapped with exasperation. I just need to know where to go. You should ask Rennie, then. It was Ty who said this. He was bouncing in his seat with an expression of happy excitement. He pointed his finger repeatedly at Rennie, who stood at the map with his lips pressed tight. Ask Rennie. He knows. Mm -hmm.